How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in this class, let's take a few moments to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to to, uh, study the Word. Uh, Scripture teaches that if we are out of fellowship, then that which we produce in our life is wood, hay, and straw. It's not... Uh, It does not have eternal spiritual value or significance, and so we need to make sure that we are walking by means of the Spirit, and and when we are walking by the Spirit, He fills us with His Word, so we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Uh, That means to confess our sins, and when we do, we are instantly uh, cleansed of sin and forgiven of all other sin. The reason that this is so important is because confession emphasizes simply a, it's sort of a reminder that Christ has paid for those sins. There, the sin isn't the issue anymore. But what has happened is that, that uh, when we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. Confession is a reminder that those sins have been paid for. It focuses us back upon our, our walk with the Lord. And the scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. And so when we confess sin, we are instantly forgiven of not only the sins we confess, but we're also cleansed of all unrighteousness. And that's grace. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very thankful that we can come together to study your word, that your word refreshes us, it encourages us, it strengthens us, it reminds us of who you are and what you have provided for us. At times it rebukes us, straightens us out, teaches us the right path and how we should live, and we need to be responsive to that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study uh, today and continue our study in how to utilize the faith rest drill, how to mix our faith with with your promises, we pray that you would help us to uh, learn how to do this so that we can make this a regular part of our day-to-day Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our study is on the faith rest drill, but in recent, um, uh, recently this has come about because we've reached a passage in our overall study of 1 Thessalonians 1.8 where Paul praised the Thessalonican believers that they had uh, their, the reputation of their faith toward God had gone out throughout all of Greece. This ought to be a... a a pattern for every Christian and for every church that we have a reputation for being people of God who trust in God and who are not shattered by the circumstances of life and the negative experiences of life. And this is the context in which we usually utilize the faith rest drill. We're going through some sort of trauma in life, some sort of adversity, whether it is a momentary affliction or whether it is something that has uh, long-term 
uh, consequences for us. It is when we are going through those difficult times, times of adversity, times of suffering, times of hardship, that we are driven to God to uh, depend upon him and to claim these promises. One of the promises that we're focusing on at the beginning of this study and to learn about how to mix our faith with God is Isaiah 40:31, which says, Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is an excellent passage to help us understand how to mix faith with the promises of God. And we're working through this process. Uh, it's important to think through the, the, the promise as we memorize it. Think it through. What, what is embedded? What's the rationale embedded within the particular promise? And why are we claiming this particular promise? So as we go through this today, I want to go back and, and finish something we started in the previous lesson, and that had to do with understanding why there is suffering in our life. We're looking at ten different reasons for why there is suffering in our life. That helps us to understand uh, the context of our own life and how we need to claim uh, claim these particular promises. When we finish looking at that in this lesson, then we'll go back to Isaiah uh, 4031 to the context of Isaiah 40 to help us learn how to think through and work through a promise. Of course, a great background for being able to do this more effectively in our lives is if you've gone through the series that I've done on Bible study methods, because Bible study methods is a foundation for any believer so that they can get more out of their own Bible reading and their own personal Bible study. Just learning how to make observations of the text, moving through those that process of observation and interpretation and then application. And so this is in some ways just sort of a, a natural application of personal Bible study methods to our own Christian life. But let's go back first and just review these ten, the first five reasons uh, we suffer. The first is because of Adamic responsibility. It's the result of sin. We live in a fallen world, a world where corruption has entered in, and it is not the world it, it should be. All human suffering, war, famine, economic collapse, um, drought, uh, weather disasters, uh, problems in personal relationships, every problem we experience in life is a result of living in a fallen world. It is not a utopic world. Utopia was lost when Adam sinned, and there will not be perfection on this earth again until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. But even then, it's not a perfect, perfect world because those who are born during the future millennial kingdom will still have sin natures. It will not be until we are in the new heavens and the new earth that we have true perfection again. So until then, we have to recognize that we live in a fallen world, and because of that, there will always be difficulty, challenges, adversities, disappointments, heartache. This is part of the human experience because of sin, not because of the, quote, human nature, but because of this corrupt thing that has entered into a human nature called the sin nature. 
The second reason we suffer, we saw, was because of individual volitional responsibility. We make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences. Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. In addition to reaping the consequences of our sinful decisions, our foolish decisions, we also may encounter divine discipline. God may intensify the suffering that is in our lives as a result of our bad decisions in order to teach us a lesson to get our attention and to get us to focus in dependence upon him. Hebrews 12, 6 through 8 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. While it is true that we uh, trust in Christ for salvation, sin is not the issue, and that uh, technically, in a sort of perverted sense, we can continue to sin uh, as much as we want and all we want after salvation because all sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. But the reality is that we are in, in, we enter into the family of God through adoption at the instant of salvation. And while we may think we can just sin with impunity, we cannot, for God is now our Father and He will chasten us, He will discipline us in order to get our attention and to train us to be obedient children. This is Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. God is the one for whom the Lord loves. He disciplines and he scourges or whips every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, that is in the sense of training, that we endure, that is endure in obedience through the adversity that comes in our lives in discipline. Uh, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the normal reality for believers is that we will experience divine discipline. But the thing that we need to recognize is that when we encounter adversity in our life and suffering, we ought to be able to think through these categories I'm mentioning and decide where the difficulty comes from. If it is divine discipline, we will know it by examining our life. We should be able to see a connection. We saw that last time when we studied the example from David. When David was uh, guilty of adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to have her husband Uriah killed, the punishment, the fourfold punishment that we looked at last time was a, that uh, were four intensifications of his um, of his consequences that were all related to sexual sin and and murder the violence that he brought into the family of Bathsheba and Uriah was then visited in kind upon his family the infant died that was the product of the adulterous uh, union between David and Bathsheba then later David's son Amnon uh, lusted for his half-sister Tamar and uh, basically raped her. Again, a sexual sin that was uh, related to uh, the, the sin of, of David. I'm not saying that David raped Bathsheba, but it is that it's a sexual sin in kind. Third, Absalom, in revenge for uh, what Amnon did, killed Amnon in 2 Samuel 13. And so this is similar to David's act of, of murder. Murder is now part of David's family. And then fourth, 
Absalom revolted against David. This eventually led to uh, Absalom's death in that revolt. And so you see the complete breakdown within uh, David's own family that is the result of his uh, attack, basically an assault on the divine institution of marriage and the divine institution of family within uh, the marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba. And so divine discipline we can usually identify it because it's related to the sin that we have committed. Fourth reason I said that we suffer is because we're connected to someone involved in either reason number two or reason number three. You're married to someone. You have children that are, and and your wife or your husband or your mother or your father makes a sinful decision, then because of our connection to them, then we reap the consequences, the negative consequences of their of their bad decision. We work for a company that is poorly managed. Uh, for example, there was the uh, infamous case of, of Enron in Houston. People who worked for that company may have carried out their, their jobs uh, with, uh, with integrity, but the management of the company lacked integrity, and because, uh, that, because of that situation, they suffered the consequence of losing their retirement accounts, losing their, uh, their job, losing their income, all of those things as a result of bad decisions, sinful decisions made by, uh, made by the management of that company. It can be, happen in a nation. There were many Christians, Jewish believers in the first century, who lived in Judea. But because the leadership had rejected Jesus as Messiah, were operating in terms of an intellectual, self-righteous idolatry, uh, they, had, uh, they had created an idol out of the Mosaic Law. And because of that, it led to a complete breakdown of the nation. God brought the final judgment of the fifth cycle of discipline upon Judea, and Jerusalem was eventually destroyed, uh, the temple destroyed, and the, many of the people scattered uh, back into the diaspora. And so, though there were many, uh, many Jews that were obedient to God, nevertheless, they suffered tremendously because the nation was in rebellion against God. This is a condition we see ourselves in in this nation now, and I predict that unless there is a major shift back to God, what we are going to see is a continual fragmentation of the social structures in this nation. We're going to see an increasing burden of taxation and debt upon people in this nation. We're going to see a breakdown of social services in this nation because when we move more and more towards socialism where the government controls uh, medicine, where the government controls uh, all of these other facets, the government has so many regulations related to business and and other areas that it, it ends up creating a, a weight upon business, a weight upon the medical field that cannot be overcome. And so uh, you have doctors, you have teachers, you have business leaders who have to spend more and more of their time and of their wealth just uh, dealing with the regulations of government, and this destroys the economy of a nation, and this is the direction we're headed, all because of negative volition. The Bible was the center of Western civilization, the unifying principle of Western civilization from the time of 
of, of the, the invasion of Christianity into the Roman Empire and its expansion uh, throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, even though there were a lot of abuses. Nevertheless, that which unified people was a belief in the Bible. Uh, they may have had wrong theologies. They may have had works-oriented theologies, ritual-based theologies. There may have been a lot of problems. But at the core, the Bible was that which unified all of the institutions in Western civilization up until you have the advent of 19th century Protestant liberalism, which caused a breakdown in trust in biblical truth. By the time you get into the 20th century and the beginnings of postmodernism, then you see society start to break down starting in the mid-60s. We really saw the consequences of that. We're experiencing the full fruit of that today, and it's because there is no center of, of culture anymore. There's nothing that unifies Western civilization. Europe is fragmented. The United States is fragmented. The culture is fragmented. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and as a result of that, it's just going to become more and more uh, chaotic. And so, as a result, those who are believers absolutely must learn promises, memorize the word, learn how to implement the, the faith rest drill, because life is not going to get easier, life is not going to get better, life is going to become more and more challenging and more and more difficult. But the hope that we have in Scripture is that, that our lives are not dependent upon our circumstances, our happiness, our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's dependent upon the God who never changes, the God who is in immutable and that's the context that that Israel was in as well in Isaiah chapter 40 which we'll get to eventually so we often come under divine discipline uh, or experience suffering rather because someone we're associated with is under divine discipline and then the fifth reason that we saw that we suffer is because we live in the cosmic system we live in a world that is dominated by uh, by fallen people uh, uh, philosophies that are that are erroneous, uh, ways of living that are uh, fallacious and that are are morally antagonistic to God, and the result is that there's just a lot of horrible things that occur because we live in the cosmic system. But uh, every believer has lived in the cosmic system, has 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 survived, and has had tremendous happiness and joy and stability because of their relationship with God. No matter what those external circumstances may be, the promise of God is that we have joy in our soul because our stability is based on Him, not upon the circumstances around us. Now, the next reason we suffer, uh, we see this in Acts chapter 16, Verses 27 to 31, this is the episode where the Apostle Paul and Silas have been thrown into jail in, uh, in uh, Philippi because of the, their proclamation of the gospel and that they have antagonized uh, various elements within the uh, city of Philippi, especially among, uh, among the Jews. There's a reaction to... Um, to what they have taught, but in this particular uh, instance, they have uh, cast a demon 
out of a slave girl which impacted the economics of those who owned the slave girl. She had a spirit of divination, and so she was telling fortune. And when uh, Paul and Silas cast the demon out, this had economic consequences. And as a result, her, her owners uh, dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace. So why are they going through suffering? They're going through suffering not because they did anything wrong, but because they did what was right, but they're living in the cosmic system. And so the cosmic system, the devil's world, reacted against what they did. And so they were put into prison. But Romans 8, uh, 28 tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. doesn't say all things are good, but God is in charge of the circumstances, and he's working those things together for good. And so they are thrown into jail uh, there in, in Philippi, and they are... Um, uh, they're there overnight, and they're 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 whipped, and they're beaten, which was contrary to Roman law, and they're thrown into prison. But we see Paul's reaction and Silas's reaction in verse 25 of that of that chapter. Uh, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, let me challenge you with something from this. First of all, they're singing hymns to God. The singing of hymns is a product of the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Ephesians 5.18, where we're commanded to be filled by the Spirit, there are a series of participles that follow that that are all participles of results, showing the result of being filled by the Spirit. And one of those is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and, and this is something we should do. Now, the challenge to each of us is, do you know, if you were locked up in jail, could you sing anything other than maybe the first verse of a Grace. We should all be able to sing from memory at least 20 or 30 hymns. And if we don't, that is, that, that's a terrible indictment of the church today. That's one of the problems that we have with a lot of contemporary Christian music is it's not memorable. One reason we don't uh, sing that at West Houston Bible Church. The tunes aren't memorable. They're difficult. And the words are difficult. And one of the reasons that I like to sing a lot of the same hymns over and over again is hopefully uh, this will embed it in people's minds and they can remember some of these hymns and some of these, uh, some of these words. So Paul and Silas are stuck in, in prison. And t- trust me, there was no hymn book in the Philippian jail. So they had to sing hymns that were in their souls. And so they knew those hymns. And they knew Bible verses that they could claim promises. And so they're expressing great joy and happiness, even though they're going through tremendous hostility and adversity. And they're trusting God. Now, the situation here is not too different from the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were uh, being going to be forced by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship the idol that he had uh, that he had created. And when they didn't bow down, the uh, their enemies had them arrested and taken before Nebuchadnezzar. And their response was that that they would not bow down to an idol that their God could deliver them. But even if he would not. 
see, they had no guarantee ahead of time that they were going to be delivered from the fiery furnace. They said, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God instead. Well, Paul and Silas had no no warning or no... Uh, promise from God that he would rescue them from the jail. Uh, they are simply trusting him. Uh, this is evidenced by their prayer, by their singing of hymns to God. And this had an impact on the other prisoners that were in the jail. They were listening to them. And I've been to that uh, jail in Philippi, and if there, you and the jailer could hear everything that was going on as well. It wasn't that large. And there weren't that many people there. You didn't have uh, soundproofing or anything like that. So the jailer could hear exactly what was going on. And then we're told that suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. Now, at that point, all the prisoners could get up and run away and they could escape. And this is what the jailer assumed would happen. Now, in the Roman Empire, if you were a a jailer, if you were a guard in charge of the prison and any prisoner escaped, then the punishment was immediate and severe and you lost your life. It was a capital offense if you let a prisoner escape. And so this uh, scares the jailer to death almost. And he uh, awakens from his sleep and he sees the prison doors open and he immediately assumes the prisoners had fled. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself when Paul cried out and, and told him to stop, not to harm himself. And then the, uh, uh, the guard grabbed a light, ran in, and fell down before Paul inside. He's trembling because he is afraid of what will happen from his commanding officers. And so he cries out to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. So the, they're, they're suffering here in terms of Paul and Silas, which is probably category number five, living in the cosmic system. But there's suffering and adversity now in the life of the jailer, who's an unbeliever, that God has used this adversity to scare him into reality. And he wants to know the gospel because he knows that his life life is short. So it's a wake-up call evangelistically. God may be bringing suffering or adversity into an unbeliever's life so that... He will have their attention, and it will be an opportunity for us to communicate the gospel to that person. A seventh reason that we suffer is because suffering motivates us in the Christian life. Suffering motivates us to uh, trust in God, to learn the Word. Uh, We see a great example of this right now in Ukraine. Uh, Eager reports, uh, Eager Smolyar, who is uh, a Ukrainian graduate of Jim Myers' uh, Word of God uh, seminary over in, in uh, Kiev, uh, has a tremendous ministry at a church called the Christmas Church in Zhutomer, approximately 100 miles uh, west of, of Ukraine. So he's uh, west of Kiev, so he's further away from all this 
uh, warfare and rebellion that's going on in the southeastern sec- area of, uh, of Ukraine in terms of uh, the Russian invasion. But this has impacted all of Ukraine, especially economically. It's a horrible circumstance, horrible situation. But because of this national adversity and because of the threat of, of war and greater violence, it has caused... Uh, Thousands of people to respond to the gospel, thousands of people to, to be more involved in church, to be more involved in their prayer meetings, and they've had just an explosive uh, response in terms of their attendance. So suffering motivates us to get right with the Lord and to focus on that which has eternal value, which is the Word of God. Psalm 119.71 the psalmist says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Christianity is not just some form of anesthesia to drug us through some sort of uh, mindless repetition of something so that we uh, basically become numb in our thinking against the pain of life. Uh, this is the way of the world, the way of religions, where you just have a mantra that you say over and over and over and over again until it blocks out anything else in your mind so that you become intellectually anesthetized to the, the, the problems and the difficulty of life. In the same way, people use drugs, alcohol, sex, pleasure, entertainment in order to distract them from the misery and the heartache and the difficulties in life rather than using the Word of God. And so we are to learn the Word of God so that we can uh, have joy in the midst of suffering without denying the reality of the adversity that we are, that we are facing. Now, a, an eighth reason that we suffer is so that we can be a testimony to others, so that we can be a witness not only to human beings, but also to angels uh, who are watching us. There are things that they long to look into in terms of how Christians respond to the adversities of life because they learn about God's love and God's grace from us in ways that angels were never able to learn about these things. Uh, Paul refers to this in 1 Timothy 1.16, where he wrote, And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so, as a Christian, our lives are to be different. How we react to adversity should make a difference. When we receive a a uh, uh, a, diag- a medical diagnosis that uh, means that we are facing some serious disease, then our response to that should be one of, of joy, one of happiness, because we know that God is in control, that even though this may surprise us, it hasn't surprised God. He has made the provision for us from eternity past, and it gives us an opportunity to trust in Him. We need to learn to look at life's adversities from a divine viewpoint that God is using these situations to give us the opportunity to, to reveal in our lives His grace and His comfort. And this is an example. There are people in each of our lives that watch us because we are believers. 
and they see how we respond to things. They want to know if if this is something that is real in our life or something that is just just phony. And, and sadly, in the lives of too many uh, Christians, their Christianity, their relationship with God is so superficial that when something terrible happens, their reaction is no different from anybody else in the world. And I've, I've gone through times uh, of difficulty, and I've heard unbelievers say, well, well, you know, you need to, you know, you're human. You need to respond. And I, what I'm hearing is you're a sinner, so you need to respond on the basis of your sin nature. That's basically what, what, what is being said. Uh, you've gone through something horrible, something difficult, something challenging. Well, you know, you need to be, uh, you, you shouldn't suppress your emotions. Well, that's just another way of saying, you know, you should, you should pan- panic and you should, um, uh, become impatient or you should become uh, overly depressed because otherwise you're suppressing your emotions. That's how the world looks at it. But when we look at at these circumstances, we trust God. We know that even though this isn't pleasant and it's hard, uh, I can have joy in the midst of that that difficulty because God has a plan and I can trust in him. So we can be a witness to the humans around us uh, and be a testimony of God's grace in the midst of adversity. Now, a ninth reason is similar to that, but instead of being a witness to other human beings, we are a witness in the angelic conflict. We are a testimony to the angels of God's grace and mercy and love. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul writes, In order that the manifold wisdom of God might, da- might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The phrase rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is a term related to the hierarchy of the angels. There are various authorities within the angels. Sometimes they're referred to as principalities and powers. Other times rulers and authorities. But this relates to the hierarchy and the chain of command of the, of the angels. Not just the elect angels. Not just the elect or holy angels, they are the angels who maintain their loyalty to God, their faithfulness to God, but also the fallen angels, those who have, who chose to follow Satan and his rebellion from eternity past, and they also, uh, learn, although negatively, they learn from our testimony about the grace of God, and it's just another uh, plank in the indictment against them as they see us respond positively to the grace of God. And then the last reason I have, the tenth reason, is that we go through these situations so that we can comfort others as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.4, we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. As we go through difficult times and challenges, then we uh, apply the Word of God. God the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, comforts us, strengthens us, and encourages us. And then we, in turn, can encourage others who are going through uh, similar circumstances. And this is part of the ministry of the local church. This is why it's important to develop 
those relationships, intimate relationships with others within the body of Christ so that as we go through difficult times, we can communicate with them. Now, there are some people in some churches that uh, act like this means that we should be sharing this indiscriminately with everybody else just because they're believers, and that's not realistic, and that's not even uh, very wise. But we need to develop a close circle of friends, those who we trust, those who we uh, know are positive to the word and are spiritually mature, and then we can uh, talk openly and honestly with them as we face the challenges in life. And because they have gone through similar things as well, we can mutually encourage each other as we reflect upon God's Word and we reflect upon our own experience of applying God's Word in our life. So these are the the basic reasons that we go through suffering in life. Now, when we encounter any kind of adversity, the first thing that we need to do is to make sure that we're in fellowship. We make sure we're in fellowship by confessing sin. Uh, this is very, very simple. When I talk about the ways and the spiritual skills we develop in, in terms of handling adversity, the first one is confession of sin. So automatically, we encounter difficult circumstances. We should make sure that we are in fellowship, confess sin, because if we're walking according to the sin nature, then our instant reaction probably is going to be one of anger, one of, uh, of depression, one of resentment, a uh, number of mixed emotions may come in, and that ought to clue us instantly to the fact that, wait a minute, I'm out of fellowship. I've got to handle this on the divine resources, not human resources, so I need to be in fellowship first. And unfortunately for many of us, myself included, our initial reaction it usually comes from the sin nature and not from the Holy Spirit. And so we need to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit, and then we can uh, move forward in the correct way, no matter what the reason may be, whether it's our own, uh, whether it's divine discipline from our own sinfulness, uh, or it's just living in the devil's world. We need to respond by 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 trust in God, and that involves waiting on the Lord, as we've seen in Isaiah forty thirty one. So you might want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40.31 so that we can look at this chapter and just sort of think our way through the, the process of how we claim a promise. We've talked about this a little bit already. We've talked about the key word here is waiting on the Lord. And so as we think about this, and I encourage you to memorize uh, promises like this that you can recall during times of, of difficulty, things that we can pray in terms of praying a promise back to God, that we are waiting on the Lord. Now, waiting isn't simply, uh, as we saw earlier, it doesn't simply have the connotation of, of just being sitting and waiting for time to go by, but it has, uh, it has the tones of confident expectation. We're waiting for something positive to happen. We're looking forward to a future positive resolution. Now, that doesn't mean that in the intervening time, things may even get worse, that we may not suffer difficulty and hardship. We may even be living in a culture, in a society at a time of war 
where we are going to lose everything we have, including our life, and we may lose that in a very painful way. Uh, one of the news items that is, uh, that is uh, very prevalent right now is the, uh, the actions that are being taken against Christians by radical uh, Muslims in the Middle East. You have the reaction in recent years in Egypt against the Coptic Christians. And uh, under a jihad, when there was the revolt um, recently that... Uh, uh, where, where radical Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, was put in charge of Egypt, uh, there was tremendous persecution against the uh, against the Coptic Christians there. Right now, we have this this horrible, brutal force called ISIS that is moving south in uh, in Iraq, and they have taken over Mosul, and they have taken all of the Christians. They have. Uh, confiscated all the title deeds that uh, Christians had to any property that they own. They've confiscated all of their property, everything, leaving them with absolutely nothing except the clothes on their back. And and they're given a just a couple of days to leave the country and leave everything behind. This is a horrible situation. In some cases, they may even be brutalized, physically beaten, or even killed. But what gives us confidence is that we know that this life is transient, it's preparation for the future, and so we have to have a long-term perspective of what it means to wait upon the Lord. We'll see that within this particular passage within the context. So we're looking at this promise. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. We looked at that word earlier. It means to exchange one thing for something else. And this is the uh, idea of exchanging our strength, our limited power, our limited ability for God's strength. It's not just something that enhances our strength. It is a an exchange of one thing for another. We think our way through the promise. That's the first part of mixing faith with a promise. And then there's a result. The result of waiting upon the Lord is they will mount up with wings like eagles. We will soar above our problems. And uh, rather than letting it get us down, and often when we go through difficult times, uh, we we have a tendency to focus on the negative circumstances, and and we become depressed. And part of what happens when we're down or depressed is you you become weary. People who are depressed want to sleep because that divorces them from reality. They can they can just sleep. Plus plus there's a physical uh, impact of of adversity on our lives where we're ju- we just feel so overcome. We feel it in our bones. We feel it in our muscles. And we're just tired, and and there's a loss of energy and strength, and so there is a spiritual, uh, or there's a physical impact to the spiritual reality because we become vitalized in our uh, uh, physical nature, so that we have the strength and the energy to face the challenges of life. So we start with. Uh, Mixing our faith with the promise of God, which means just thinking through the promise. And as you memorize it, I've said earlier that one of the easy things that you can do to memorize a passage is to simply write it down over and over and over again. Write it down, say it out loud, repeat it back. 
and then as we're saying it, think through what is being said. Why is he saying this? How does he structure it? One of the things that I point out in Bible study methods is to look at these connective words, uh, words like but or and or therefore, what is he saying? Uh, is there cause and effect uh, that's stated within a passage, which is what we see here. There's a cause, uh, which is to wait on the Lord, and then there's an effect. And they renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. But as we think through a passage, like, like we do with Isaiah 40:31, and if you look in your Bible, you see this is the end of a section. It goes back earlier, and, and I want to walk us back a little bit uh, to understand the context. If you go back to verse 28, if we go back to verse 28, we can begin to understand the rationale that is embedded in verse 20, in verse 31. Verse 31 is a, is really presents more of a conclusion that is true about those who wait upon the Lord in contrast to those who don't. And so we look at Isaiah 40:28, we get an idea of what undergirds the promise of verse 31. And uh, verse 28, we read, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Two rhetorical questions that parallel each other. Much of prophecy, if you, as you see, and most modern translations will uh, break out uh, poetry sections in the Scripture and write it as poetry rather than as just prose. And you'll notice that much of prophecy is written in poetry. Format and this is what is known as synonymous parallelism. So the the writer is repeating the same thought uh, in two different ways. Don't you know? How do we learn things? Usually by hearing them, being taught them. Have you not heard? What he's saying here is, haven't you learned this? And the assumption is you should have. Uh, you should have. But let me remind you. So these are two uh, rhetorical questions here that are designed on focusing somebody on a piece of important information. And the important information here is God. He's taking us back to the fundamental problem solver, which is God. God, in reality, will look at the essence of God here, but it's the essence of God that undergirds almost every promise that we come to in dealing with adversity. So he's going to focus on these characteristics of God. First of all, he says the everlasting God, and then he defines that. It's not just generic deity, but it is the Lord. That uppercase L-O-R-D indicates the proper name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. It indicates God as the covenant, faithful covenant God, of Israel. It further defines him in the next stanza as the creator of the ends of the earth, and then it says about him he neither faints nor is weary, and then lastly he states his understanding is unsearchable. So the, it begins with two related questions related to knowledge, something that we should know and be applying. The reason this is asked is because uh, the reader isn't applying this. It's focusing on, on him on this, uh, the foundation for the promise. 
he emphasizes these attributes of God. So we look at the essence of God, and we see that God's essence is composed of ten things that we emphasize, ten attributes. He's sovereign, righteous, just. He's eternal life, uh, omniscient. He's omnipresent, omnipotent, veracity, and immutability. So, it, first of all, he says God is everlasting. He is the eternal one. There's no beginning. There's no end to God. And the implication is that because God is eternal and our problems are limited in time, that God is able to solve the problems because he is everlasting. He, his time span is greater than the time span of the problem. Even though the problem may last beyond our temporal lifespan, God is not limited by that, and so he will eventually bring about the conclusion to that. We also see here that he adds something else. The second thing that he adds is that uh, he is uh, everlasting. That also emphasizes God's, God's faithfulness. He's immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He describes him as Yahweh, the covenant faithful God. In that sense, he is immutable. He is always faithful. Again, he emphasizes to the next slide here, his God's sovereignty. When we talk about God as the creator of the ends of the earth, he is the one who is the sovereign God over all that he has created. He is in control of all that he has created. And this also brings into uh, focus his omnipotence. As the creator, he is omnipotent. Now, this is expanded even more in the next stanza, where it says he neither faints nor is weary. Your problem is not so great that it's going to wear God out. He's not going to throw up his hands in despair. He's not going to become weary by trying to solve the problem. He is greater than the problem in terms of his power. So we see in just these uh, two lines, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, that he is focusing on these four attributes of God, his sovereignty, his eternality, his omnipotence, and his immutability. But then the last line, he adds one more aspect, and that is the omniscience of God. That God knows all things. So there's nothing about your problem or my problem that God is unaware of. He's known about that problem from eternity past. Uh, he has given us everything we need to face that problem. And so we can rely upon the fact that God knows everything that I'm going through. He is a, we could add to this, he's a loving God, so he wants to uh, help me in order to handle the problems that I am facing. He has the power to solve the problem that I am facing. He's eternal, so he's not limited in time. We could also say because he's eternal, he has seen uh, tens of thousands of others facing the same problem. And because he is immutable, he is going to be faithful to his promise. 
Now, as we continue to look at this, one of the things we need to do is go further into exploring the context of the promise. So we've seen uh, right away that his part of the embedded rationale here is to look at the nature of God, that he is... Uh, able to handle the problem. This is how the writer goes on in verse 29. says, He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. Again, that's a reference to God's omnipotence. But when we take this, this promise, this chapter of chapter 40, and look at it in terms of the flow of Isaiah, something very significant uh, comes out. The book of Isaiah is divided into two major sections, the first 39 chapters and the uh, last uh, 27 chapters. In Isaiah 1 through 39, the focus is on the warning to Israel of God's ultimate and inevitable judgment on the nation for their disobedience and their idolatry. They have violated the Mosaic law. They have disobeyed the instruction that God gave in Torah. And so because of that, God is going to ultimately remove them from the land, and there is the warning for that. So there's a very negative, harsh, disciplinary tone to the first 39 chapters. There's a warning that incredible adversity is going to come. Uh, But in the 27 chapters following that, and uh, uh, that should be chapters 40, I put 40 to 46, it should be chapters 40 to 66. And Isaiah 40 to 66, the focus is on grace, the promise of God's restoration of the nation in grace. God is not may bring discipline in their life. He may bring adversity into their life. He may even bring bring great famine warfare, destruction into their life, which of course did happen uh, leading up to the destruction or the defeat of the nation in 586, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple in 586. All of this happened, but God is giving a long-term focal point to how uh, he is going to uh, eventually rescue them, deliver them, and establish them back in the land according to everything that he promised in the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So chapters 40 through 66 focus on the promise of God's restoration of the nation in grace and a complete fulfillment of every promise that he made made to Israel. So chapters 40 through 66 focus on this ultimate deliverance and include the great chapter, Isaiah 53, as the focal point on how God will redeem Israel from their sins and provide uh, justification for them. So we see this, this important aspect here. This is a passage of hope, and it focuses our attention back on the character of God and on what he is able to provide for us in terms of uh, uh, in terms of sustenance in difficult uh, difficult times, and so we see this in uh, in Isaiah, and this is going to be developed in the rest of this particular uh, this particular chapter. So uh, we come down to verse twelve. Our back to verse uh, to verse twelve. We go even further back in the chapter, and we see that this is part of this this rationale. 
he takes us to the character of God. He said God is, and he, and he emphasizes the character of God through a series of rhetorical questions. He says in verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Has any idol or false god done that? Has any human done that? Who has been able to measure? He talks about not only the, the, the fact that God is able to measure all of the water on the face of the earth, but it is there's a picture of God who has all the massive amounts of water in the palm of his hand. And this emphasizes uh, that he is the creator. He is in control of the environment on the earth. Uh, man, by the way, cannot destroy the environment on the earth, no matter how hard he tries. He may make it miserable in some places and difficult, but God is in control. God has created uh, facets of the environment that are uh, that that end up scrubbing itself and cleansing itself. And this whole idea of global catastrophe or, or weather catastrophe is just absolute, complete nonsense built on man's idolatry of creation rather than his worship of the Creator. So here the focus is on the immensity of God, that he is greater than any... If he's greater than any detail in the creation, he's greater than any problem that we experience. So we have the initial question, who's measured the, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Only God. Who's measured heaven with a span? God is greater than heaven. Uh, he has measured it. He controls it. Who's calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Uh, even the most microscopic particles, God can can count every every particle, every atom in the universe. Who's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? All of this is designed to portray God as being the Creator, in control of His creation, and that He is greater than all of His creation. Uh, then we look at the. And this focuses our attention again on the uh, omnipotence of God and his sovereignty over all of his creation. Again, we just keep going back to these uh, character qualities in God's essence. Uh, then verse 13 says, Who's directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? In other words, God is under the, the it is so great in his omniscience that it extends to everything. Nothing is left out. No one is greater than God. No one can instruct God. God is self-sufficient in in his uh, in his knowledge. So again, he not only has great power, but he also has uh, uh, full and complete knowledge of all things. Then we come to. Isaiah uh, 40, verse 14, again, focusing on God through these rhetorical questions. With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showing him the way of understanding? All these questions are to show that God's omniscience is, is self-contained. It is eternal. It's infallible. No one is greater than God. He knows everything. And then we can go on to verse uh, verse 15. And in verse 15, uh, as we go through this, we see the continuation of these anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is a way of 
uh, communicating God's character to us in ways that we can understand. And anthropomorphism is a figure of speech that attributes to God physical characteristics of a human body which he does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's plan and purposes. God doesn't have a hand. Uh, God doesn't have an eye or a nose or an arm. These are just figures that we understand by virtue of our frame of reference, and they communicate something about the nature of God. His eye going back and forth, uh, scanning to and fro on the earth is a picture of knowledge. Usually his arm is a picture of God's power, his omnipotence, something of that, of that nature. Now we go on in verses 15 through 17. We read, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. He Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. All of these verses just emphasize the, the omnipotence of God and his control over the affairs of man. Verse 17 says, All nations before him are as nothing. Now, Israel is going to face tremendous adversity from military conquest and then being scattered as minorities among all the nations of the earth. So here they are being reminded that all of these nations wherein they will be scattered are as nothing before the Lord. Hamas is as nothing. Hezbollah is as nothing. Lebanon, Syria, Egypt are as nothing compared to the plan and the purposes of God. And then in verses 18 through 20, he, he continues to emphasize uh, uh, God's uh, capabilities, that, that he is greater than anything. We can't compare God to anything because God is far beyond anything in our frame of reference. That's verse 18. Uh, idols are just something that man creates, but they are nothing that will survive uh, destruction by man. Uh, they are simply a, a product or a creation of man. And this leads us back to where we began uh, in terms of some of these questions that God asked, have you not known or have you not heard? Again, a reminder, I want to pick up next time in Isaiah 40:21, and we will continue to talk about the context of this promise and how, uh, how this impacts our understanding and application of the promise. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this, this, uh, in this lesson. And Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, uh, use these principles, think through Scripture, think, read the surrounding context of promises that we know and that we use, and that we may be challenged to memorize uh, Scripture, memorize these passages so that we can internalize them and our own souls to face the adversity and the challenges that will come into our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.